we bring before you this morning all that we have to offer. We have, Father, nothing that you need, for you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and all that you have made is yours. And yet, Father, you tell us that you desire that we would come to you worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you inhabit the praises of your people. And so we bring you all that we have. We bring you our lives, Father. We bring you our commitment in our faith, which you gave as a gift, to follow you with our whole hearts. And though we have that desire and we make that commitment, we know we fall short on many days. And Father, we thank you that you have stayed with us, that you persist in your faithfulness even if we are not faithful at every moment. And we come back to you on these mornings each week, and not because you're in this building, for you are in us. And not because this building is the church, for we are the church. And not because this event is what you desire, but because it is our lives that you desire. But rather, Father, we come here each Sunday because you have called the body of Christ to act as one for our own benefit. And we acknowledge this morning, Father, that we come before you and study your word because we are not living at all times in the way you ask and because we do not know all that we should know and because we are sometimes, Father, forgetful that you have saved us for a purpose and brought us to this point for a reason and we need to devote ourselves to understanding why. And so I ask, Father, that in the word this morning, as always, you would be faithful to teach us not just about the events of Abram and his life, but it about ourselves and about our lives. Show us how to follow you more fully through what we learned today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are moving through the story of Abram into chapter 14 this morning. And you may remember I've said along the way we've been counting two lists of Abram's life. One was the seven times Abram hears from God. So far, if you're counting, he's heard from God three times. There are yet four more to go in the life of Abraham. And each time we see that encounter with God, we're getting a chance to see Abram grow in the light of the Lord's grace, how that interaction with God on a personal level improves his nature and character and grows him in the face of Christ. And then there's the second list we've been counting, and that is the 12 times Abram's faith is tested or challenged in the course of his walk with God. Twelve crises, some have called them, in which God asks something of Abraham that Abraham has to make decisions about, has to make choices about. And those 12 crises test him and test his faith, ultimately leading him to grow. Now today, in chapter 14, we're going to find two more of those crises. His nephew Lot is still around, as we talked about last week, still causing trouble for Abram. And that fact that Abram has brought Lot with him, despite God's instructions, means there are further consequences for Abram to bear now because of that choice. And yet, as we watch this morning and in future weeks, God is going to use that opportunity, that mistake, as a way of testing Abram and growing him. So God is turning all things to good, even in that way. But from the standpoint of the other list, the one which is the seven times God speaks to Abram, this is the only chapter we have in the entire story of Abram in which God is not shown speaking to Abram. And yet, God is represented in the course of this chapter, because he will be represented by both a king and a priest who will ultimately play that role of speaking on behalf of God. And the story begins this morning in chapter 14 with the first 
military campaign in the pages of the Bible. Verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Busha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedalomar, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. We're introduced here to numerous people, numerous locations, words and names that aren't familiar to us. And so, if you're like me and you're studying in a casual style, you'll come to a part like this in the story of Genesis and you'll just speed right through it because... After all, the names are hard, you can tell. I had trouble with them. And they don't hold a lot of meaning for us. They don't represent geographical locations we're familiar with. And and it all just blends together in our head. The names of these kings, though, and the locations are important to the story. And we'll take a moment to understand them here. These are the first names, by the way, that you see recorded in the entire pages of the Bible, the first time in the book of Genesis, that you see names in a language other than Hebrew. Up until this point, every name we've seen mentioned in the Scripture have a Hebrew origin. They're Hebrew words. And so now we see the full effect of the scattering back in the Tower of Babel. For the first time now, we have nations or people, groups, who, because of their different language, have arrived at new names that are not Hebrew in their origin. Further proof that the very first language of humanity was Hebrew. Now, there are a total of nine kings mentioned in this chapter. Four northern kings who invade and conquer or try to conquer five southern kings. So four against five. The four in the north come from the place names we heard, Shinar, Elisar, Elam, and Goim. Now, let's look what those names actually mean today. Shinar, for example, we know that one already. We've studied that in earlier chapters. Shinar is Mesopotamia, which is the place of northern and eastern Babylon, also today Iraq, and most notably the place where the Garden of Eden began in Mesopotamia. Elessar, or Lesar, was the leading tribe in southern Babylon at the time. Elam is western Babylon of this day. And Goim is a word that means in Hebrew simply nations. And as that word might imply, it is a collection probably of other people groups or areas or tribes in the same general region. So interestingly here, as we start this story, what do we see? We see nations led by the kings of Babylon invading the promised land. Now, if you are a student of eschatology, there are some very interesting parallels forming in the story already. Now, they attack as they move into the land. Five kings, we're told. The five are located in a small area at the southern end of the Dead Sea, called the Valley of Sidim. Moses, you note here, says that is the Salt Sea. That's what they called the Dead Sea back in Moses' day. So we're talking here about a valley at the very southern tip of the Dead Sea. If you have maps in your Bible, uh, then you can quickly find that location. If you look on your map at the very end of the Dead Sea, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar, that's where they were traditionally located. Today they're not there anymore, of course. Moses tells us that these five kings in the south had at one time, for some period of time, 12 years specifically, they had served as vassals 
for the northern kingdoms, for the northern kings. A vassal is a kind of a relationship in which the vassal serves someone else. They often became vassals because they were either given their authority by those other kings, they were put in place by the other king, or maybe they were subjugated at some earlier point, and because they were conquered, the conquering king said, I'll leave you in power, but from now on you owe me. And the result was that a vassal had to pay tribute to the king that they were in obligation to. And a tribute is, think of it as a tax, making payment so that the people who conquered you get some benefit out of your land and out of your leadership. And you have to do as they say. So these are five southern kingdoms, five southern kings, all serving as vassals of the northern kingdoms. But we hear that after 12 years, these southern kings decide they'd had enough of being vassals and they've rebelled. And so they tell the northern kings, forget it, we're not paying you any more tribute or something to that effect. And the rebellion begins. And then in verse 5, let's see what follows from that event. Verse 5, In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh, Kariathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, and as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and title king of Goim, and Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, or Lassar. Four kings against five. You have here, in the 14th year, the year after the rebellion has begun, the kings of the north decide that now it's time for them to show their power and to subjugate these rebellious kings in the south. And the leader of this group, the, the man or the king in charge, is a man named Chedilomar, or as I like to say, the big cheese. The invading force comes down in a very interesting way, very militarily speaking, a very, very smart approach. They come down the east side of the Jordan River through current-day Jordan. Again, if you have a map, and I encourage you to consult it, there is a range of mountains that runs on either side of the Jordan. That's why the Jordan is a river valley. There's mountains on either side. They are proceeding down the far eastern side of that mountain range, so they are hidden protected behind a very difficult mountain range, wilderness mountain range, as they move from north to south. They're essentially flanking the kings of the south. Rather than coming directly upon them, they're coming around from the eastern side. As they proceed southward, we hear, beginning in verse 5, that they attack any city they come along through that path. And the reason is probably because any of those city nations could potentially be allies of the southern kings. So if they take them out one at a time as they move southward, they're removing potential allies or supporting forces when they, so that when they finally attack the southern kings, there'll be no one there to help them. It's a very smart strategy. So we hear that they defeat, for example, the ancient Hamites called Zuzin, which lived just east of the Jordan. Now, what's interesting about that is when they defeat those people, they leave that land essentially unoccupied. And later in the story of Genesis, that land is going to become home for 
Lot's descendants, specifically the Ammonites, who are going to later possess this land. Arguably, they wouldn't have been able to if it had already been occupied by these Hamites. Now they're going to move a little further south, we're told, from that point, and they defeat Emim, which is just east of Jericho. Now this is the place where Lot's other descendants, the Moabites, settle. And again, the land had to be cleared for the Moabites to live there. Next, they defeat the Horites. Now the Horites occupy land that later is settled by Esau to form the Edomites, which is another people group that will come from Abram's family line. Finally, we're told they reach as far south as El Paran. This is right down into the peninsula of the Sinai, right above the uh, Gulf of Aqba today. That's how far south they end up going before they turn. This land, they defeat those occupying the city and the town region of El Paran. They clear that out as well. That becomes home for Ishmael's descendants, Abram's other son. So you notice how God is at work here already. These four kings moving southward, protected behind that eastern side of the mountain range, hiding their approach. But as they go on this rampage, God uses their advance to clear the land that he knows will become the home for all these people groups out of Abram's family, in keeping with his promise to bless his family regardless of what comes. This is a perfect example of God turning all things to good, for his own purposes and for the good of those who love him. It's an amazing plan in action even before any of those other events are in place. Back to the campaign. They turn now and go northward. At the point where they reach the Gulf of Aqba, they start to go back up north, we're told, now into the heart of Canaan, headed toward those rebellious kings at the southern part of the Dead Sea. But before they do that, they take a a very wide path out westward into the wilderness of Zin, the southern Negev, and they defeat the Amalekites and the Amorites. Again, more allies. And then finally they come into the valley and they approach from the south. Now this is the opposite from the way those kings would probably have expected to see their enemies approach. From the southwest, not from the northeast. The opposite side would have given them a tactical advantage, and I'm sure that's why they were doing that. And then as soon as they see the approaching armies, they have no allies anymore. These southern kings don't anymore because they're all taken out. And they're forced now to come out, we're told, and fight in that valley against this invading army. Verse 10, we hear what happens. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Well, now the story comes back to Abram and Abram's family. Now we begin to see why this this whole event is even portrayed in the pages of Genesis because of how it affects Abram and Abram's family. The location here for this battle, the battle in the Valley of Sidim, it's right at the southern end of the Dead Sea, as I said. It was known then, and it is still known today, as a place where natural tar pits are common, naturally occurring tar pits. In fact, I'm told if you go into the Dead Sea, it's still possible to see little balls of tar floating up onto the shore, like we see here because of oil drilling. They see it there just naturally as part of what's in that area. Now, when we talk about tar, it's literally asphalt. Naturally occurring asphalt pools. Uh, The La Brea tar pits in California are the same kind of thing. So it's highly viscous. Someone described it as uh, comparable to cold molasses. 
If you fall into one of these things, you're done. Unless you have help, I guess. But you're done. Because you're not going to be able to get out of it. It's too sticky and too viscous. And you're just going to slowly sink. There's, there's nothing to heap you afloat, and you're not going to climb out of it or swim out of it. This material, by the way, is the same material that we are told back earlier in Genesis was used to bind the bricks together in the Tower of Babel. This is that same material they used. So the battle, we're told, was a rout. The kings of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah flee. They flee, but they're running so aimlessly with such fear that they stumble and fall, we're told, into these pits. And that's to their end. That's to their doom. They die in those pits, we have to assume. The remaining three kings, we're told, flee into the hill country. Now, that's, that's looking at the hill country of the Palestinian region, which is a way of saying the mountains. And they're probably talking here about that mountain range I mentioned that runs north to south on one side or the other of the Jordan River Valley. So they flee up into the mountains. They leave. And the conquering army that's left, the, the kings that have won now from the north, they do what armies do after they win a rout in a battle. They rape, they pillage, they plunder. And I'm not altogether sure what the difference between pillage and plundering is, but they did it. And so now you have them going into the cities of Sodom, the cities of Gomorrah, removing the people, removing the food, removing the, the, the animals, taking everything that has any value. And the plan, of course, is to go back into the north where they came from and take all the spoils of war, scorched earth policy, basically, as a testimony to any vassals that remain in the area that this is what happens when you rebel against us makes a point one of those subjects though one of those people that they pull out of the city is our man lot now it's interesting here because we're told in verse 12 that lot is now living in the city of sodom now the last time we heard about lot was way back one chapter earlier chapter 13 verse 12 but when we heard about him then, he had pitched his tent outside the city of Sodom. Now these men, Lot and Abram, have been living in tents exclusively since they left their ancestral home. And we heard earlier as we studied Abram's life, this is by design. At least in Abram's case, it was a testimony that he did not place any of his trust or any of his future inheritance in what he could see, in the land that existed, in the people that existed, the cities that existed. He didn't want to be seen as being a part of their world. So he purposely stayed out of the cities, lived in the wilderness in tents. Not because that was his cultural pattern, not because that was what he'd been taught to do. He left a city, but now he learned not to live in a city as a testimony. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us about the faith of Abram. But Lot, who also was living in tents initially... Lot now has thrown the tent aside, it appears, and is now made a home inside the walls of the city of Sodom. In that wicked city, he has found a place to live. Lot and Abram form a really powerful contrast in this story and in the story of Scripture generally across the stories of Genesis. And look at this contrast because it is such a powerful one. It is such an instructive one. You have Abram on the one hand. He, he is the man of faith. He's the man we've been studying, a righteous man, a man who lived by that faith. He, as I mentioned, purposely remained outside cities, living in tents. And he showed faith in God's promises by forsaking any compromise with the world. Now, he's not perfect. We've seen that already. But perfection isn't the goal, right? It's persistence. And he's been persistently trying to show faith through the choices and the decisions he's made. That's one man. That's on the one hand. Now Lot, his nephew, is a man who Scripture tells us also is a man of faith. 
He is also a man who knew the living God, and he is counted righteous by his faith. Peter tells us that most clearly in his letter, his second letter. In 2 Peter 2, 7, this is the quote that Peter gives us concerning Lot. He says, If God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what Lot saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So Lot, according to Scripture, was the same man of faith that Abram was in terms of his relationship with God. He was counted righteous by faith. But in terms of his lifestyle, in terms of his decisions, he stands on the polar opposite of Abram in the course of this story. Lot made very different decisions and choices than did Abram. He has chosen to adopt a lifestyle that mirrored the world that he knew in that day, living in a city, living as the city lived, I'm I'm assuming. And we remember how he got there, right? Remember last week? What led him into this city in the first place? His eyes, right? He looked up, he saw a fertile valley, reminded him of Egypt, looked pleasant, and he goes down into the valley and pitches his tent right outside Sodom. Now, a man who's led by his eyes, we don't have to have Scripture to come to a pretty smart understanding about what must have happened once he pitched his tent outside of Sodom. He's still looking around, and at some point, he looked up at the city and noticed the life of the city. He noticed the the activity, the merchants, the people, the noises of music or whatever else goes on in a city like Sodom. And something about that continued to draw him and attract him. And so he moved from living outside the city to at some point moving into the city. He's attracted by what the world values. And yet scripture tells us in Second Peter that Lot was oppressed by what he saw in Sodom. This is a very contemporary statement. Now oppressed means several things and can mean different things in different contexts. We can mean that we are fighting against someone and they're oppressing us and we're resisting, but they're winning. But that's not the sense of this Greek word. The word oppressed here in the Greek is ketapaneo. Ketapaneo. It literally means worn down. This is a man who was worn down by his exposure to the world of Sodom. The sense of this word is, over time, he just slowly, slowly conforms. There's that great analogy some of you have probably heard, I know I've heard it many times, of the frog in the water. That if you wanted to boil a frog, cook a frog, you don't throw a live frog into boiling water because it it can sense the temperature of the water so quickly that it can jump out before it stays in long enough to, to die and be cooked. But if you put the frog in cold water and then slowly heat the water up, it will die from the heat before it realizes it's getting too hot. That analogy, I don't even know if that's true, frankly, I've never tried it. If anybody here has tried it, let me know and I'll I'll adjust my analogy. But from what I understand the point of the analogy to be, this is a man who was oppressed in that sense of a slow wearing down. Had he seen where he was going right from the start, maybe he would never have gone. Maybe he would have seen that for what it was and jumped out. But because he's just hanging around the edges long enough, it wears him down. And the next thing you know, we have Peter saying, righteous lot, oppressed, worn down by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. 
When Abram disobeyed God's instructions to leave Lot behind, he set several wheels in motion for himself, for his own life. Disobedience creates consequences, both for Abram and for Lot. But God's promises to Abram were assured because of God's faithfulness, not because of Abram's. So God is working here to use Abram's mistake for his own good purposes. And one of the ways God decided to use the fact that Abram disobeyed and brought Lot, he's using that story in the pages of Scripture as a picture for us of the future events of Israel, but also as a personal story for what can happen to a man who's righteous or a woman who has faith if we allow the world to wear us down. He's a picture of a carnal, disobedient follower of the living God. Particularly, in this case, of a Gentile follower of God. Lot is Gentile in the sense that he is not of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. So he stands apart from that line and he becomes a picture of the Gentile particularly, but just in general of a believer. Why, for example, was Lot even in the land, the promised land? Not because God brought him in particularly, but because God brought in Abram, the line of Israel, but by association with Israel, Lot has been brought into the land also. A clear picture of how the Gentiles are made a part of the family of God by an association with the promises of Abram to the nation of Israel. And as a picture, therefore, he represents Gentile believers. But carnal, worldly believers. Romans 11.11 tells us this is exactly the plan God's had all along for the nation of Israel when he says, I say then, Israel did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Look at that picture in Abram's life. By Abram's transgression, by his mistake, the Gentiles, Lot, have opportunity to participate in God's plan in the promised land. That's not so as to cause Abram to stumble, is it? No. But ultimately so that God can show his mercy to a greater audience. But now... Lot here, having been given that grace to enter into the land, he's living in harmony with the world, though, not in concert with God's word. And so he begins to be a picture for us of the consequences when people of God do not fully follow him. That's why Lot's so powerful. Unless we are working like Abram is working, consciously considering our choices and acting in a way that is consistent with God, we will fall into the place Lot is. We will get worn down by a world, by the enemy, who seeks nothing more than to destroy what God is building up. So here's Lot now, taken away by these kings, finding himself a captive, heading to Babylon. Now it's no coincidence that this attacking army is made up of forces coming from Babylon. You see a wonderful picture just in that detail of how the enemy, Satan, whose home base, we know scripturally speaking, is Mesopotamia, Babylon, That's where his center of power is in the scriptures. He is always attacking, seeking to destroy and carry away God's people. Lot's going down with the ship because he chose to align himself with the people of Sodom rather than remain outside in his tent. And this forms in itself another picture, the way in which God will one day send Babylon into Israel to carry off the people of Israel into captivity as penalty for their unfaithfulness to him. There's a lot of pictures being laid on top of one another in this story. Now, there is a second half to the story, the story of God's faithfulness to his children despite their faithlessness, and that begins in verse 13. The story begins to turn back now in verse 13. 
We're told, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the yokes of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Asner, or Aner. And these were allies with Abram. It's kind of a difficult sentence in Hebrew, which is why it doesn't read very well in English. But the sense of it is pretty obvious. Abram's nearby, and somebody who runs from the events of Sidim, a fugitive, we're told, makes his way to find Abram and then relate to Abram what happened. And he calls him Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time Abram is identified in Scripture as a Hebrew. In the Old Testament, this term is used culturally. We're talking here about a a cultural or ethnic designation in this context. So to the refugee, he knows Abram is one of those Hebrews, one of those different people. They're not Canaanite. They're not from around here. We would say a stranger. You're not from around here, are you? You're a stranger. That's how the word is being used here. What a testimony. Think about what that says. To the people of Canaan, Abram is not one of them. Abram's lifestyle, his testimony has caused him to stand apart in such a way that the people of Canaan have come to see him as a different ethnic group within their own culture. That's how distinctive Abram has been in his own lifestyle. They even named him something. They said, you're a Hebrew, which is taken from the the name of his ancestral father, Eber. They made a name up for the guy because he's so unlike them. That's what he's known as in that culture, the Hebrew, the different one. Now, what is Lot known as? It's not Lot the Hebrew, is it? It's Lot the Sodomite. By that I mean, of course, a citizen of Sodom. But he's also known as a family member of Abram. This refugee has come somehow to know of Lot's connection to Abram, which would tell us that Lot has made that information known somehow over the course of his time in the city. He probably would have liked having the status of being the nephew of this rich, powerful Hebrew that lives out in the land. He may have made some point about that along the way. Which is why this refugee decides that his only hope, as a result of this defeat... The only hope he has is to run to this man, Abram, this Hebrew, and seek his help. The only explanation for why that refugee would have thought Abram was a logical person to go appeal to is because he knows there's a relationship between Abram and Lot. Otherwise, why would you go approach Abram? If it were not for Lot involved in this circumstance, you can be sure Abram would have sat back and said, not my problem. Right? Why would he get involved? There's no reason to be involved. But since Lot has been made one of these captives, the refugee knows that if he can appeal to Abram on that basis, Abram is likely to get involved and help. That tells us something about both Abram and Lot. First, it tells us Abram has become truly rich and mighty in the land, powerful enough that this refugee thinks he could actually stand up against these kings and do something about the problem. That tells us a lot about just how powerful Abram has become in light of God's blessing. God promised that he would make Abram great, and he is doing it already in earthly terms. But secondly, and more importantly, it tells us a lot about Lot. Lot tried to maintain his status as a relative of Abram. Yet, he's living in the city of Sodom, which would also tell us that he's trying to be adopted by the world of Sodom. This is a man who clearly is trying to live in both worlds. We also know that Lot is a righteous man, and he's been tormented by the sin of Sodom. So that probably means he was 
that person who is trying to act like one of the crowd, but because they're different, because they know the Lord, because they're convicted about certain things, they don't quite make it work. You know the person I'm talking about? Maybe that's one of us sometimes. You know, you're trying to be fitting in with the world, but because you're just fundamentally different at a spiritual level, they can tell the difference too, and they just don't fully accept you. That is the picture to me of Lot, a man who was working hard to be accepted in a world he wanted to be a part of, and yet he still had one foot in the other world, the nephew of Abram, the man who is righteous by faith, the one who could not agree with what he saw going on in the city around him, and yet wanted to be a part of it. We'll see more of that in later chapters, chapter 19 particularly. But for now, it's enough for us to remember, based on the example of Lot, we can't have it both ways. I mean, I've yet to find anyone who really made that work, because I don't believe it's possible. If we are saved by faith, then we are called to live by that faith. And if we try to live with one foot in the world and one foot following God, we eventually do the splits with all the pain that that invokes. In fact, what we literally become is the man of James, the man who is unstable in all his ways. Think of somebody whose legs are split too far apart. You're not very stable. That's exactly what's going on here. Christ talks about this same problem at several points in the Gospels, and I'm thinking particularly of Matthew's sixth chapter. He says in 622, the eye is the lamp of the body. Isn't that interesting? He begins with a discussion about Lot's problem, the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth isn't merely a love of money. It goes to the entire desire for the world's offerings. Whether it comes in money, fame, power, material goods in any form, that's in keeping with what Jesus is talking about here. You can't serve the world and serve God. As you go after the world, you begin to hate God. And a Christian can hate God, absolutely. In moments, in lifestyle, in attitude, you can begin to resent this relationship. Just like a rebellious child, you can begin to resent the parents that you have. doesn't make them less your parent. Or, if you become a follower of God in the way you're supposed to, the way we're supposed to, it's inevitable the world will turn us off more and more and more. Less and less of it will appeal to us. Less and less of it will be what we want. The question is just a matter of which world we're going after. Because you can't go after both at the same time. Jesus says that's simply not possible. The most miserable person you will ever meet in life is a believer who is determined to live in a worldly way. The most miserable person you'll ever meet. Why? Because when an unbeliever sins, they will experience consequences from their sin to some degree. That's going to happen to pretty much anyone. But because they lack a personal relationship with the living God and a personal knowledge of God's expectations and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they will sin in a largely guilt-free way. They can actually enjoy their sin. Now, the consequences will come. But in the midst of it, sin is fun for them. But for the believer, 
The believer, when they sin, they get both the consequences and they get this unbearable guilt. The conscience that comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can't enjoy it. Well, you can pretend to. You can try to convince yourself it's fun. You can try to override those feelings for a while. But it never quite works. The guilt of a believer will continue to be there. That's what I believe Peter is talking about when he says that Lot was worn down, oppressed by the, by the sin of these people, and then it tormented him day after day after day. The guilty conscience of a righteous man, you can't escape it. Even the most hardened, hard-hearted believer is still going to experience the convicting work of the Spirit. And that difference, by the way, is by design. It's God's plan. We are convicted by the Spirit as godly discipline. That's the whole point. In fact, I think it's one way, particularly one way, that we're marked as different from the world. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 12.8. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and sons. The writer of Hebrews says it is a defining difference. If you as a Christian can say to yourself, I've never experienced conviction, I've never experienced God's discipline, then the writer of Hebrews says you're not a believer. You're an illegitimate son. You're only fooling yourself because it is a defining difference. God brings us that conviction so that we would see the error of our ways. We would conform ourselves to the will of God. It's how we're sanctified. That's sobering. I'll admit it. And perhaps, if you're like me, there's a little conviction coming up even in the moment because you're beginning to ask yourself, at least I do when I study this, I start to ask myself, which lifestyle is mine? Am I Abram's lifestyle or am I Lot's? Because remember, I can't be both. Jesus himself said they are mutually exclusive. You cannot serve two masters. So which one am I serving? And if truth be told, it really depends on the day you ask, right? Abram lived a life of faith and it produced in the people of Canaan, a view that he was set apart. He was a Hebrew. He's not one of us. Yet they knew Lot was related to Abram. So they must have seen him as a stranger trying to fit in. Now, how does the world describe us? Do they see us as someone living a life according to a different course, a different path, not putting our trust in the world, not putting our faith in the world, and as such, set apart, wouldn't it be nice if we had a name for ourselves that distinguished us from the rest of the world? Oh, wait a minute, we do. It's called Christian. Or would they describe us with titles like, we're Americans, or we're Texans, or we're UT fans, or we're marathoners, or we're musicians, or we're engineers, or we're teachers? Is that the way someone describes us if we had to ask them, who is so-and-so, who is so-and-so? Those aren't bad titles, of course, but the question is, what are we known for? There are a lot of Christians who are known as those other things, but I think the goal, according to Scripture, is that they would know us first as Christians, and by that word they mean someone not like us. We are supposed to live in such a way that we are light and we are salt. Light because we bring a truth they don't know. And salt, because by our presence, we stand out and make distinction and call attention to the difference that the gospel is. Not in arrogance, not in judgment, 
just in faith and love. Let's end there. Let's go to prayer. And let's move out into the day with, I hope, an attitude of service and difference-making. Father, the story of Lot and the story of Abram are convicting stories, but I pray, Father, also they offer a measure of encouragement and guidance. Just as Abram, Father, had days in which he traveled into Egypt and left you behind, we have had those days and will have those days. But we can take encouragement in remembering how you brought him back out. You never left his side. You remained persistent and faithful and blessed him, Father, though he was disobedient. And you did those things, Father, because of your faithfulness to your own promises. And then there is also Lot. And though we might see ourselves in his story and feel conviction, and so be it. Nevertheless, Father, we also know that you never left his side. And that he was rescued from coming judgment. And that he is preserved in the pages of Scripture as evidence of how you can turn all things to good. And though, Father, we strive to be Abram and not to be Lot, we take encouragement in knowing that whomever we are, in faith we have been saved, and not by a work of our own, but by your mercy and grace. And at the same time, Father, the conviction that might come in a story like Lot is important, for it reminds us, Father, that though you've done the work to save us, you call us into a life of obedience. And that obedience, Father, matters to you. And so I pray, Father, that for all that we may have done in the past, our walk of obedience would begin anew today, as it should each day. And that you would count us as good and faithful servants, not because of perfection, but because of persistence. Let our study this morning, Father, push us ever onward in that desire to obey and please you. Father, as we go into a time now of fellowship and of consideration for the ways in which we can help and serve in this church i pray father you would bless the food that we will eat together the food that will nourish our bodies and strengthen us to that work that you would guide our speech open our ears to hear and speak to our hearts help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of jesus christ so that we may serve in this body and equip each other for the work of ministry we pray these things in jesus name amen